Well, good morning. I would say I'm on pretty safe ground with this statement that there's not many people in this room that when you read last week or this week in the program that we were starting a series on Judges or you found out this morning we were going to be looking at the book of Judges, there's not many people in this room who went, yay! (laughs) Right? I mean, probably can't name many of the judges, like Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar. I mean, familiar household names, right? That's like your middle child's name. So it is a fascinating book, though. It is an amazing collection of stories that are worth diving into, and so that's what we're going to do. The book of Judges details this 500-year history, this window of Israel's history, where older leaders like Moses and Joshua have died. In fact, the book of Judges opens with Joshua's death. And then it's not quite into the period of the kings who led Israel, like Saul and David and Solomon. There is this loose unity among the 12 tribes in this window of history. They've gotten into the promised land. They're settling and everybody is just kind of doing their own thing. There's no real key leader in charge of the nation. Every family group goes their own way, and they fall into this very predictable pattern, personally and as a nation. Here's what happens. At some point, a leader who's been guiding them dies. And when that leader dies, the people regress spiritually. They stop following God. There's this phrase in the book of Judges that happens multiple times where the author writes, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as the people regressed spiritually, problems come. Most often, the problems presented as foreign nations invading Israel. These armies would sweep in. They would kill people. They would steal or kill the livestock. They would decimate the crops and make life unbearable. And when that happened... When the problems came, the people began to beg God to save them. Because he's gracious, when the people turned towards him instead of away, when they began to beg him, God rescued them. And most often the rescue came in the form of a judge who served as the military and political leader for the, not the nation, but for a specific problem in a specific region. The judges saved the day. And when they did, the people returned to their former ways and began to follow God again. And life is very good until that judge dies. And the whole cycle starts all over again. The situation was so predictable. You start to see it through all 12 of the judges. It just happens over and over again. And you would think somebody would notice, either personally or collectively as the nation, they would notice this pattern. They would get the connection between their actions and the consequences that follow. It's important for us, I think, to look at these stories over the next few weeks and understand how God rescues his people. When they turn to him, when they call out to him, God rescues his people from hopeless situations, but he tends to use some really imperfect, unlikely heroes. And if we'll listen to their stories, they can teach us a lot about the patterns of weakness 
in our own life. So we're going to dive in this morning, not at the beginning of the book of Judges, but in Judges chapter 6 with what I think is maybe the most unlikely hero in the entire book of Judges. We're going to take a look at Gideon this morning. Gideon was, did not come into a leadership role in this whole story because he was an outstanding example of leadership. It wasn't public demand that brought him into that role. And it wasn't his own personal desire to lead that brought him into that role. Gideon's personal life, his faith, those don't stand out as a great example to us either of how to follow God. He wasn't this extremely courageous person. In fact, his life is wracked with fear and doubt. He had serious questions about God, serious questions about the world around him, and questions about how those two things were related. His story begins in Judges chapter 6. And now that I've shared with you this cycle that the people go through, it becomes immediately apparent when you look at the first verse of chapter 6. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Those were seven horrible years to be living anywhere in the nation of Israel. The Midianites regularly descended. The Bible says their coming into Israel was looked like a horde of locusts coming in. They came in and stole crops. Whatever crops they didn't steal, they destroyed. They took all of the livestock and what they couldn't haul away, they killed. They left Israel beaten, bruised, battered, and with nothing to eat. And out of fear, a lot of people began to try to avoid these regular raids by abandoning their homes, abandoning their towns, and going to live in caves in the mountainsides. They returned to what had been recently their lifestyle of just being wandering nomads in the desert. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to God for help. And in this context, we get our first glimpse of Gideon. It's harvest time. And like clockwork, the Midianites are on a march heading towards Israel. They're going to steal crops that the Israelites have just harvested, just grown and finished. Gideon falls in that category. He's managed to pull together this meager crop of wheat. And rather than going up on the mountaintop where the wind will help with sorting out the wheat from the garbage that's in the harvest, you just kind of take a winnowing fork and throw it in the air and the wind blows away the bad stuff and the wheat falls to the ground. Rather than risk going on a mountaintop where they usually did this to get the winds, he's down in the bottom of a wine press trying to thresh the wheat. He's out of sight and full of fear. And in that context, God sends an angel to talk to Gideon. And he said, you got to hear the humor in this. He says to Gideon in the bottom of the wine press, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, if you could pull Gideon aside at that moment, say, I want you to like do this T-chart, put your weaknesses on one side, your strengths on the other. That list of weaknesses for Gideon is going to far outweigh any strengths that he sees in himself. It's true for us when we do the list, too. He is, and he says this to the angel at one point, he says, I think you got this all wrong. I'm like from the smallest family in the smallest region, and I'm the scrawniest kid in my family. 
I'm, I'm just a scared farmer on the brink of starvation. And he's hiding in the bottom of a wine press where nobody can see him. At this point, Gideon is a lot of things. But a mighty warrior? No Chuck Norris, right? More like Barney Fife, if you remember him. But when God looks at Gideon, that's not what he sees. He sees Gideon in light of who he will become. It's a really important question to ask this morning. What do you think God sees when he looks at you? Most people respond to that question with failures in their life, with past mistakes, with weaknesses. We're just a collection of all those things and a few successes sprinkled in. That's not what God sees when he looks at you. When God looks at each one of you, he sees his kid, his child, whom he loves deeply, whom he wants to help, whom he believes in. He sees what you can and will become through him. It's really challenging for us to get to that place, to believe what God believes about us because the voices in our head are really strong. Our past screams out at us. And for some of us, there are those wonderful people in our life who continually dredge up our past and what we were. God's not blind. God knows full well all of Gideon's past, all of your past, all of mine in full detail, in living color, and yet he chooses. He chooses to see us through his eyes of mercy and grace. That's why he called Gideon a mighty warrior. Now, I'd love to say that that affirmation from God changed Gideon instantly, that it filled him with confidence and strength, and the rest of his life was dramatically different. It didn't, okay? Gideon is face-to-face with an angel bringing a message from God, and Gideon decides the right thing to do in that moment is to launch into this barrage of questions and accusations. And he says to the angel, and he starts good in the passage, he says, you know, excuse me, but if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? And why has the Lord abandoned us? I think Gideon's problem is our problem. We tend to do the same thing. When bad, ha- bad things happen, we often question the presence of God in our lives. Is he still with us? You can read the Bible, and almost every leader did that. David, King David in the Psalms, writes repeatedly, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you forsaken me? God, have you turned your back on me? God, do you hear anything that I say to you? See, the picture here, though, is not that God has abandoned Gideon, or his people. The point here is that the people have walked away from God. Now, I'm not suggesting that anything bad that comes into your life or mine is a result of disobedience. It's a result of bad decisions that we make. However, there are some things in our lives that if we're honest about it, we got ourselves into the mess. We made a decision, and where we are is a logical consequence of that decision. And it happens more often than we'd like to admit. Gideon 
looks around and he is filled with doubt about the goodness and faithfulness of God. And if God's allowing all this to go on for seven years, how am I supposed to know that God's going to be with me? Right? Yeah, you're calling me a mighty warrior, but is God really going to be with me in those battles? God is so gracious to Gideon. He meets him at that point of weakness in his faith and in his life. He doesn't have the angel correct Gideon, lecture Gideon, doesn't launch into like this hour-long discourse on how God has blessed and led the nation of Israel and all of it. None of that happens. God hears the doubt in Gideon's voice. And he says, here's what you do. You just go in the strength you have. Whatever that is, just go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. That's such a great word for all of us. Go in the strength you've got. Go with the faith you've got. Whatever level of strength it's at. And if we're honest, every one of us this morning has doubts and questions. We have something we're facing in our life, potentially, that seems beyond our resources, that seems overwhelming, or we just can't see a positive outcome happening in it. We're like the man who brought his son to Jesus to be healed, and standing face to face with Jesus said, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's an honest prayer. And it describes Gideon's life perfectly with his relationship with God. From the moment God first speaks to Gideon, there is this uneasy dance that goes on between them. Gideon tests God's faithfulness. God tests Gideon's obedience. And Gideon struggles with doubt all the way through. Is God going to be with me? How can I know? And all that wrestling comes to a climax when Gideon hears that the Midianites are not just on their way, they've crossed the Jordan River and they're in the land. Gideon just says to God, okay, all right, if I'm going to do this, I need some solid assurance. I need something that's going to prove to me that you're with me. So here's what I want, God. I'm going to take this fleece and I'm going to put it on this wooden threshing floor. And if I come back in the morning and the floor is dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll know that your promise is true. I'll know that you're going to be with me. So Gideon goes to sleep and God begins to work. Now, let me just stop and tell you that what Gideon is doing here is something that we are told we should never do in Scripture. The Old Testament says, don't test God. In fact, if you were a part of the nation of Israel and you discovered somebody who was doing a test like this, testing God, testing his faithfulness, testing his promises that way, it was punishable as a capital offense. You were executed for doing this. Furthermore, the exact test that Gideon is doing is done in all of the pagan religions that are in the land. So he's using something that's done with false gods and he's testing God He's on thin ice. And God works with him. He answers him. And when Gideon comes back in the morning and walks on that threshing floor, he notices it's dry. And he gets over to the fleece and he picks it up and it's wet and he starts to wring it and he wrings out a bowl full of water. That's pretty convincing, right? 
I mean, I'm convinced of that. I would say, God's with me. And Gideon goes, eh, that could be a fluke, right? I mean, you ever walked out on your deck and there's like, you've left a towel or something out overnight. Nothing else is wet, but the towel's got a little moisture in it. You go, it's not necessarily a sign from God the next time that happens to you, right? Gideon goes, okay, God, what I meant to say was, let's do this a really unnatural way. So I'm going to go back to bed tonight, and when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. Now, it's a good thing there's not like six objects in this testy designer. He'd have been there all of his life. Let's try this. Let's try that. Maybe this. Gideon comes back in the morning, and it's exactly what he's asked for. I've seen this principle misapplied in the Christian life so many times. These fleecings have nothing to do with Gideon determining what God wants him to do. That message is clear. That message has been communicated to Gideon multiple times and in multiple ways. Gideon knows that his charge from God is to go out and defeat the Midianites. That's clear. Gideon is doing this because he's wrestling with doubt. He's wrestling with fear. All of these demands are a sign of a lack of faith, which is really bizarre. Because in the book of Judges, Gideon gets more personal, verbal, and physical assurance from God than anyone else. And he wrestles with doubt more than anyone else. His weak faith is propped up just enough by these two fleecings that he takes his soldiers out and they're about to confront the Midianites. So they're assembling, getting ready for battle. The Midianite army is camped in a valley. There's 135,000 soldiers, trained warriors, skilled warriors, ready to fight for Midian. They came in on camels, which in the Old Testament, this is the very first time we get any idea that people used camels in warfare. This is a new thing. And they're terrified. And in that context, God tests Gideon's obedience. He says, okay, so you've seen the army you're up against. I see your army of 33,000 you've assembled. That's good. But I think you've got too many men. Really? I mean, that's four to one odds. There's no guarantee of victory at four to one odds. God says, you know, it's possible that you and the army could win this battle simply on your strength. And if you did that, then the people wouldn't know that it was God who rescued them. So Gideon listens to God and God says, I'm going to thin out the ranks. And he goes through two different experiences where he thins the rank of the 33,000 soldiers down to 300. 300. The odds are now 450 to 1. They're overwhelming odds. Every bet that's being made is on Midian, not on Israel, and not on Gideon. So where's your faith now, Gideon? How strong do you feel? I have this solid conviction that true strength, true faith, is following God in spite of our fears. Doing what God asks us to do in spite of our doubt. And if Gideon's story teaches us anything, it teaches us that it's never 
We're never going to have enough signs or miracles or direct answers from God to remove all of our doubt. There's not going to be enough confirming evidence for most of us to go, this is what I'm supposed to do. This morning, you may have walked in here with a question, a problem, a relationship, where you're saying to God, I need you to show me what to do. I need to be sure that if I do this, you're with me. And so the question from Gideon's life is, how much assurance will it take? Because we often say, if God would just speak to me, if God would just do this, I'd know for sure. Gideon's life says, that's not so much true. That wouldn't convince us necessarily. Do we need a dream? Do we need one fleece? Two fleece? How do we know for sure? And the answer is, we can never know with 100% certainty. We just have to go with the faith we have. It's okay to have doubts. But at some point, you've got to take the leap. You have to begin. You have to do. You have to serve wherever God calls you and do it with that mixture of faith and doubt and know that God will use you. Know that he will be with you and know that he will make up the gap. I believe part of our challenge comes from this mistaken idea that's getting perpetuated in Christian circles. And I've heard it so many times in some really dire circumstances where people will just say, well, I just know that God will never give us more than we can handle. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, it teaches exactly the opposite. We are regularly going to face challenges that are beyond our means. They're bigger than us. We're going to sometimes feel like we're in that same battle with 450 to 1 odds against us. We have no chance of winning. And those moments come in our life to teach us, to help us see that without God, we will fail. We need God in those moments and in every moment of our life. When God was done pruning Gideon's army, Gideon was crystal clear. He needed God's help. And here's what happened. So Gideon took his army of 300 men and divided them into three groups of 100. I'm not sure that was smart. You know, maybe he was just thinking there's no point in all of us dying at once. We can all die slowly, you know, in smaller groups. The Bible says they then surrounded the camp of the Midianites, 135 people. I think saying that 300 men surrounded them is a little generous. And every man was armed with some very interesting weapons. Gideon gave them a clay pot, probably one of the water pots that were in the camp that was like a 20-gallon pot. Inside of the pot, they put this lit torch. So those two things, in addition, regardless of their musical ability, every man was given a trumpet. That is a very unconventional battle plan, right? Gideon says, go to your positions around the camp, surround the camp, and when I give the signal, do what I do. So at midnight, during a shift change for the guards for the Midianite camp, Gideon gives the signal, and they all throw down their clay water pots, and they break, and light and fire fill the sky around the camp, and they blew their trumpets, all 300 of them, And the Bible says that when the 300 trumpets sounded, 
the Lord caused the men in the Midianite camp to turn on each other with their swords. Chaos and confusion broke out in the valley. And all these armies that had aligned with the Midianites to fight Israel, all of a sudden it becomes this scene where the camels are confused and they're stampeding and these men in the chaos are starting to kill each other. It's crazy. In the confusion, as Midian and his 300 soldiers watch, 120,000 of the Midianite army die. They fought each other. And it was really clear to Gideon and his men who won this battle, right? I would love it if, like, I could just say, you know, this point, from this point on, the trajectory of Gideon's life was up and to the right. He just did great things and God was with him and the nation prospered. But sadly, even before this battle is over, the success goes to Gideon's head. He gets full of himself. He pushes his men beyond what God has asked. He sees 15,000 troops fleeing for their life, trying to get back across the Jordan before they're killed. And he challenges his men to go after them, to pursue them, and he leads the way. This is not something God has asked him to do. He pushes them in battle. He pushes them to the brink of exhaustion and starvation. He takes his 300 men and fights a battle because of his overconfidence, because of his desire for revenge. He wanted to catch the Midianites because they had killed his brothers. He wanted to catch them and have revenge for the seven years of horror that they had inflicted on the nation of Israel. And so he pursues and kills the two generals in the army. He pursues and kills the two kings that were in the army. Along the way, he calls for Israelites to join in the battle, and some do, but most don't, because they have fear and doubt. And rather than understand their situation, Gideon returns after the battle's over and exacts revenge on the people in his own country who refused to join the fight. He is way outside of the task that God asked him to do. And this overconfidence begins this downward spiral in Gideon's life of broken and sinful behavior. Gideon's example in the declining years of his life cast a shadow on all of his earlier achievements. Which I think gives us the final lesson we can learn from Gideon's life. We have to be careful in our success. The Bible's filled with examples of leaders, of individuals who in a moment of success, just got full of themselves. And at their pinnacle of success, they failed miserably. Gideon, King David, Elijah, the prophet, on and on the list goes. When God rescues us, when God helps us, when God guides us, when God gives us success, it is so easy to get full of ourselves. A little success And we can start to take responsibility for events and circumstances over which we had no control. History teaches us again and again that our strengths can be more dangerous to our faith than our weaknesses. Our successes can distract us from our need for God, from our desire to follow God, from our trust in God and His goodness and His mercy. We have a lot to learn from these judges. We have a lot to learn just from Gideon about believing 
the truth that God believes about who we are and who we can become. About going with the faith we've got rather than looking for 100% assurance so that it's not actually faith at all. And about getting full of ourselves. I think Gideon's story is recorded just for those reasons. The good and the bad we can learn from his life. The Apostle Paul, who was a student of the Old Testament, said this. He said, look, all these stories, they're all warning markers in our history books. They're written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. At the beginning is where they are, and we're at the end. And we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. So don't be naive. Don't be self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. So forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty aware of the ways that I mess up my life when I get overconfident, when I seize control, when I try to do things my way. I'm aware of the messes that I make when I get full of myself. And when my self-confidence replaces God's God confidence, and I don't want to live that way. I don't want to repeat the mistakes I've made in the past, and I don't want to do anybody else's mistakes. God confidence doesn't demand that we be free of doubt. God confidence gives us the assurance that with God, we can face anything. That no matter the struggle, if we're here in our faith, if we're here in our resources, and here is where we need to be, God makes up the gap. And we can handle with God any challenge that life throws at us. God confidence leads us into this honest relationship with God where doubt and fear are mingled together with faith. Where we wrestle with tough choices and we come to a place where we can pray that honest prayer. God, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief.